This is the city, Seattle, County of King, State of Washington, Seattle, USA. In all this wide, wide world, there's no other city quite like it. I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is Downtown Stories from the Downtown Seattle Association. Downtown Stories is a new podcast launched in honor of the 60th anniversary of the DSA. It's all about exploring the city where we live and finding out how it came to be one of the most dynamic downtowns anywhere. On this episode, in the years after the 1962 World's Fair, downtown Seattle was riding high and a can-do spirit took hold of the city. In 1966, John Gilmore joined the staff of what's now called the Downtown Seattle Association. In 1970, John became president, and he was in charge for more than two decades, including during that 1979 NBA World Championship year for the Seattle Supersonics. And the Supersonics win their first ever NBA championship. The ball sails high in the air. I remember coming down 4th Avenue uh, about when we got to uh, University Street. And the crowds were so huge. Uh, I had Lenny Wilkins and his wife in my car, the lead car, and Charlie Royer. But the crowds were so huge they couldn't see him. I met up with John Gilmore on the waterfront one day this summer, and we took a drive around downtown Seattle, recalling his years with the Downtown Seattle Association and taking stock of how the city changed then and how it's been changing ever since. And we're on the waterfront in Seattle because, for me, Seattle history begins on the waterfront, as we learned in episode one with Leonard Garfield about the settlers arriving here and, of course, finding a native community that had been here for thousands of years, but then making their own unique imprint and setting out to build what became a pretty amazing metropolis. So, um, John, you were director, or you came to, what year did you come to Seattle? When did I come to Seattle? Yeah. Uh, In the fall of 1966. We're under the viaduct right now. <laughs> I will tell you that I came in on the viaduct because the I-5 uh, corridor was not open yet. And I remember coming in right here, and the tallest building in town was the Smith Tower. Now, where did you come from? Uh, the San Diego County, actually National City in Chula Vista, California. So did, how did Seattle, how did the Seattle you found in 1966 match up to your expectations of what you thought you would find when you got here? Well, it, it matched up very well. It was uh, highly successful. It had just gone through uh, and celebrated a World's Fair that was uh, more successful than most any other had ever been. Uh, and they had the, uh, I guess they describe it as the can-do attitude. And it was uh, very apparent. You know, I've heard that described before, that notion that since the World's Fair was, in fact, so successful, both as an event and as a, you know, it wasn't a money-losing operation. There was actually some kind of profit generated from it. You bet. Um, So there was some sort of, would you say there was a palpable sense of, we did this, we can do anything? That's exactly what the can-do attitude uh, is. Yes, if we can pull this one off, we can do just about anything. That's great. So in, in 1966, what was on the list of things that what's now the DSA was trying to do? Well, it is kind of interesting that since the very beginning they were talking about how do we replace the Alaskan Wave Viaduct? <laughs> uh, now, it, uh, in 66, um, a lot of downtowns across the country were in steep decline. You know, the glamorous new shopping center, regional shopping centers were developing all over, and they were 
sucking lots of the retail uh, establishments out of downtown. That's I'm talking about across the country now, mostly in the eastern and Midwest. Uh, but that hadn't happened here in Seattle. So uh, in 1958 then, um, I think, and this is a biased viewpoint of course, is that they established and created the Downtown Seattle Association to try and combat that so it never did happen in Seattle. And, and to a great extent, uh, I think we'd all agree that that really didn't happen in Seattle. We've, not that we haven't had a couple of downers, uh, we have. Uh, but all in all, um, Seattle has maintained a pretty steady progress. It seems to me that there's something that's, I don't know if it's unique or at least distinctive about Seattle in the 1950s, is that you had the investment in big downtown retail, both um, the building where Nordstrom is now was Frederick and Nelson. They yes. expanded, they doubled the height of that building in the early 50s. The building that currently has at least part of Macy's and previously was a Bon Marche, they expanded that building in the early 1950s. But at the same time you had things like um, Northgate sprouting up um, north of the city and you had Bellevue Square over on the east side of the lake. And it South Center. Yeah, it seems like we had it, we had it all, we had both. We had pretty robust, amazing kind of, uh, not quite suburban, or but edge of the city kinds of developments like the three you just mentioned, but then we also had pretty robust downtown as well. That seems like we were sort of spoiled in a way. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, uh, although I don't think that was accidental. Okay. You know, I think it was by design because I, I keep using the, uh, the term passive. Uh, it would have been so easy for the business community to be passive and see if this decline actually happened in Seattle or in downtown. Uh, but it never was passive. It was always aggressive, always opportunistic. You were the marketing guy first, right? Yes, I was. And then you became director in what year? Uh, 1970, January 1st, 1970. Okay. Oh, you, you talked about the can-do attitude after the World's Fair. Um, does that apply, or does that have some bearing on what Jim Ellis did, tried to do, and then did most of with Forward Thrust? Oh. Yes, I, I, I would even go back beyond that and talk about Joe Gandy and uh, uh, Eddie Carlson. Uh, they were the really strong leaders early on. Now, Jim Ellis, um, boy, he was wonderful. Uh, he came up with the idea of building a convention center in downtown oh, yeah. on the air rights <laughs> over the freeway. <laughs> At that time, that was a... Uh, <laughs> a really far out idea, uh, but you can see that it's been enlarged and a couple of times it has had a tremendous impact on downtown. In fact, I guess at the moment it's being enlarged. Yeah, yeah. I, so uh, I give Jim Ellis a lot of credit. So was, um, was Joe Gandy around much when you first started in 66? No, he was not, Okay. Uh, but he was uh, one of the early day chairman of the Downtown Seattle Association, which in those days was the Central Association of Seattle. I think he was the very first chair, and I think he, they, they, uh, the World's Fair Committee plucked him off. They sort of cherry-picked him and stole him away, <laughs> which makes sense. Yes, kind of. He, he was a good leader, uh, a well-thought-of, very active guy. In fact, he and uh, Eddie Carlson, together on that project, uh, were famous for having daily meetings during the fair process at seven o'clock every morning. 
Oh, and those were at the Olympic Hotel, weren't they? They were, yes. Yeah. Now, again, that's before I arrived, yeah, but yeah. I'm telling you what I've heard about all of that. Um, yeah, Gandhi was, um, I interviewed his daughter not that long ago, Marilyn, and she, um, we were talking about his, you know, in the 50s, he was a he was a partner in a car dealership. He was an yeah. attorney, but he wasn't that active in the dealership. Smith Gandy Ford. Smith Gandy. Over on Capitol right. Hill. But So he had time on his hands, I guess. He wasn't like he had to run the car dealership. Smith was running the car dealership. I'd never known that until his daughter explained that to me. But uh, yeah, he was he was critical to the way the World's Fair turned out. And Absolutely. Then, uh, it's cool that he was also the first chair for the uh, Central Business Association. Yes. Or Central Association of Seattle. Central I have a hard time remembering the original. Yeah. I think Downtown yeah. Seattle Association is well, much it, catchier. It actually, it had three names. Then later on, it became the Downtown Seattle Development Association. Oh, that's right. And then finally, during my... Uh, watch it became the Downtown Seattle Association. Okay. Now I'm coming up to Fifth Avenue here. I'm not sure if this is exactly the street, but I've seen some pictures of you driving an old car with some basketball players in it. Oh, <laughs> is that on Fifth? Did it start on Fifth and move it, over to Fourth? It was Fourth. Okay. No, so, it started down by the Kingdom and uh, came up Fourth Avenue. Okay. Uh, made a loop on Pine Street and then back to University. In uh, those days, uh, in the early days, University Street in front of the Olympic Hotel was kind of the general big deal meeting place. And uh, they closed the streets. Oh. Um, it was a great day. Um, giving you a little more background, the, the year before, let's see, I guess that was 79. That they won the world, the Sonics won yeah. the world championship. And just to make sure, I don't think I've said yet. We were talking about when the Seattle SuperSonics, a basketball team we used to have around here, and may have some here here someday again. Yes. Won a world championship in '79 and came very close in 1978. And yes. So, Let me start in '78. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Nice parade, thousands of people downtown. Everybody well organized, uh, on the sidewalks, rooting in their favorite uh, uh, athletes. And so we thought that was fine. We would uh, we would do that again this year uh, when they won. I'm not sure whether Charlie Royer, mayor then, asked us to run the parade or we volunteered. I'm not sure. Uh -huh. In any event, we used antique cars to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Mistake. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> uh, I remember coming down Fourth Avenue uh, about when we got to uh, University Street. And the crowds were so huge. Uh, I had Lenny Wilkins and his wife in my car, the lead car, and Charlie Royer. Wilkins was the coach, Royer was the mayor. Uh, but the crowds were so huge they couldn't see him. So I had him set up on the back of the uh, back seat, which did damage to my car, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> wait, wait, wait which kind of, what kind of car were you driving? It was that a point? 1922 Chandler Phaeton. Wow. In any event, they were crowding in, and. And by the time we got to University Street, they were so crowded in, it was a dead blockage in front of us. <laughs> Charlie happened to have a radio, and he radioed into the police department, <laughs> and we were at a dead standstill there because we couldn't move forward. People were on my running boards, and <laughs> it was an overwhelming, enthusiastic, wonderful event. Uh, Charlie again got a... Uh, a group of uh, motorcycle policemen that formed a V that helped us get through. I, I guess I would point out that I think they say or uh, estimated that there were half a million people in downtown that day. Wow. Uh, hanging out the windows where there were windows that would open. 
and uh, hanging on telephone poles. It, it was almost unbelievable. Uh, this city is not designed to have a half million people here at one time. <laughs> You know, I, I, I came out a few years ago for the uh, Seahawks parade. When yes. They won the Super Bowl because that reminded me of that. I took my daughter out of school and everything. I sort of part of me thought, eh, they might win again next year. We don't need to do this. And I thought, no, nah, just to be safe, we'll, we'll go to the parade this year. And I'm glad we did, but it was very cold that day. Um, with with those old cars in 1979, any cars have trouble uh, with overheating in the slow? All of them. <laughs> All of the above, <laughs> including mine. <laughs> but the point is that every one of them made it. And here's where we're at University oh, Street yeah. now. Let's go That's down the block here. The, yeah. Where the big uh, celebration was. You know, I didn't realize that, I hadn't thought about that area functioning that way. Uh, I think that's historic. I think it's been doing that, had been doing that for many years before I arrived. I believe that's where they had that place called Victory Square during World War II. Where I they would think do that's bond right. sales. They'd shut off University Street between 4th and 5th, and they had a podium. Uh huh. Uh, Cairo Radio was right across the street in the Cobb building, and they yes. would broadcast stuff live. And anyway, it was all everything else. Yes, that as a matter of fact, be. when I first arrived, we had uh, we had Santa arrive by helicopter, <laughs> <laughs> and he arrived on top of because the helicopter could land on top of the Olympic Hotel, oh. and we had University Street all closed off for that event. Again, there were thousands of people there uh, with their children. That's interesting. That hadn't occurred to me that 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 function that was created for Victory Square continued that many decades forward. I, I, I guess before they had Westlake Park rebuilt, yes. that there wasn't any place downtown to gather other than that necessarily. Not really, that's right. Huh, well, that's cool. Okay. As, as you look at it, you can see it's a wide open, nice space for it, or at least it was. Yeah. <laughs> Under construction today, uh, next door, so that will limit that. So here we are right here in the spot. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So, in the years that you were a director, what was, uh, what was the biggest challenge that faced the DSA? And I think about later years like the, the WTO and things like that. We have these very sort of very big dramatic well, crises. Anything like that during your years? Oh, I guess I missed the right turn only lane. I guess I'll have to do what uh, well, this guy did here. that kind of thing exactly. I, I think one of our biggest challenges was what was called the Land Use and Transportation Plan. A very boring subject, <laughs> but, but we spent three years working with the city on developing a land use and transportation plan. And the reason I bring that up is because it's been the basis of so many things that have happened since. For one thing, uh, there were civic activists who wanted to stop grow all growth in downtown Seattle. Uh, they wanted to stop density increasing. Uh, they wanted to cap the buildings, um, and we spent three years working on that uh, with just about everything we had. We, as we are crossing, uh, coming down this street, you can see the Columbia Center, Columbia Tower. Yeah. So that proves we won. <laughs> uh, but they did want to cap all heights on buildings, and and you've got to relate that back to the fact that if you put these buildings up and there are tenants that will occupy them, that's jobs. Bottom line is you would have stopped all job growth in downtown had they been successful. What was their reasoning for wanting to do the, the, do the cap and do that sort of thing? Uh, I think to keep, uh, to keep Seattle as it was. 
Um, I, I, I can't find any real solid reason besides that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that side of the work that DSA does and that other you know, other interests in downtown do, that regulatory stuff or those big plans. I know like in the early 60s, they were working on the central business district plan and all the, the things that ended up resulting in um, the Pike Pine Corridor stuff and the changes to Westlake Park eventually. Yes. Um, but that stuff's important. It doesn't. It isn't. It doesn't get the same kind of public attention unless there are battles over it, like there were in the time you're describing. But it certainly does lay the groundwork and affect all sorts of things for years to come. Um, I think. I mean, I've lived in Seattle all my life. I'm almost 50. I, I can think about how much Seattle has changed, and it's it's radical in the last 30 years in particular, where it went from this eh, very post World War II looking kind of place. You know, just sort of uh, didn't look like it had changed much since the you know out of 1950s or so. And then the density in the last two decades in particular is just over the top. Um, I mean, it seems like it's a good problem to have, right, to be dealing with a city where people want to be here to live and work and play and everything. Well, I would go back just a little bit farther than that. Because, as I mentioned, when I arrived in 66, the Smith Tower was the big building. In the 80s, I think we turned that corner. one of the first really high-rise buildings in downtown and, and, and kicked off the high-rise developments uh, was the Western Tower. Western Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but during the 80s and early 90s, uh, we had major boom in high-rise buildings in the city. Now, if you compare it to today, uh, maybe not that significant, but it was building the base that everything is happening now. Um, certainly with all the cranes going, and I understand it's the number one city with the number of cranes, um, but but development started long before then, before now. Uh, and where we're driving right now is right on the verge of another thing that, that we've been deeply involved in, and that was the Kingdome, uh, and here on the waterfront, uh, the Waterfront Aquarium. Both of them could well have gone somewhere other than downtown. Let's go drive by the King. What's now where the Kingdom used to be right now? I'm just a little. I was afraid I was going to turn down a one-way street there. So it's a little confusing down here now. I, I was going to say it's <clears throat> confusing to me because they've got so much blocked off today. I think I have a lane of southbound travel here, um, just based on the way I have a, a yep, right-turn-only lane. So okay, we'll try this. Let's try and get close to where the Kingdom used to be. So tell me about the. Tell me about the Kingdom. Again, uh, Mecklen Moore was president of the Downtown Association while that was really underway. I was on the marketing committee, heading up the marketing committee. Uh, but there was competition uh, trying to put the kingdom. Well, let me back up for a moment. The general public uh, approved the uh, funding for the kingdom, but not the location, not at a specific location. Uh, the competition was South Center and, uh, as I recall, a couple other places. And uh, our job, downtown association job, was to convince them that it should go in or close to downtown so it could utilize all the restaurants, hotels, and facilities. And uh, obviously, we were successful at doing that. It's a heartbreaker to see it be. Uh, imploded, but <laughs> yeah, it was. It was odd. It seemed very unusual. But the, but the point is that it, not only was it successful, but it it brought in all of the professional sports. 
baseball and football, I should say. Yeah. I remember going to the first football game there, the first baseball game there, and uh, probably the things we're looking at right now may not have happened had that not. I mean, those are heady times. You think about that Mariners franchise um, in 77 or the Seahawks in 76. Mm -hmm. That's if there was any doubt that Seattle was growing like crazy and was becoming the, you know, the key city of the Pacific Northwest. It's, it's, in some ways, it's kind of silly that big league sports are what the indicator is, but there's no, there's no getting around that having a professional baseball team and a football team by 1977 and 76, that's, that's a sign that Seattle's arrived for I think so. So, many, so many ways. And yeah, so King Gnome's no longer here, but of course, what is it called now? I was going to say Quest Field, but it's actually Century Link Field. I can't yeah, keep Century track. Link. It's changed its yeah. name a few times. And then you built Safeco across the street, too, so you had this whole, this whole sports complex down here. And, and all the redevelopment the on the parking lot. Yeah, I don't even know what those buildings are. <laughs> but they're very unique. <laughs> and I think that, 24 yeah. years since I've retired, this, this city has had dramatic changes, huge changes. Again, uh, back to the stadium, though, uh, in those days, again, uh, Nordstrom was playing a major role in this city, That's right. as they always have. That's right. Uh, and Lloyd Nordstrom was headed, Nordstrom's owned the, the uh, Seahawks, and Lloyd Nordstrom was chairing it. And at one point, Lloyd Nordstrom was chair of the Downtown Seattle Association. Huh. In fact, they were all the generations that went from Lloyd Nordstrom uh, Bruce Nordstrom, the next generation, was was uh, chairman of the Downtown Association. And just as I left, Blake Nordstrom became chairman of the Downtown Association. Wow. Oh, and I've, I should have mentioned Jack McMillan was in there. Jack was the uh, one of the co-chairs of Nordstrom's. Wow. I mean, it makes sense. You know, they have big presence downtown, and all, it all sort of fits together. I, the same <clears throat> kind of thing fits here. Uh, the aquarium uh, funding was approved oh. without a location, uh, and we uh, we wanted it to be downtown, uh, so that it would be a major attraction and something that not only the community could utilize and enjoy, but that the visitor could. Well, we had lots of competition there. Uh, Dr. Dixie Lee Ray, before she became governor, uh, was head of Pacific Science Center. And she wanted to put it at Golden Gardens and make it a, uh, 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 a, a scholarship. A, uh, what am I trying to say? Anyway, a research uh, facility kind of thing. Yes, so, a okay. research facility. Wow, that would have been very different than the downtown aquarium. Oh, it really would. A whole different concept. Uh, again, I think everybody would, uh, or most people would say, putting it down where it is was the right thing to do. One thing I'm getting from driving around and talking to you about these different things, it's they're not exactly tangential subjects. They're all tied together because it's all downtown focused and location based. But they're all pretty different in terms of you know the impact, whether you're talking about sports or an aquarium or mm -hmm. transportation or housing. It's uh, kind of makes my head spin a little bit how much well, how complex it is. It is you're you're absolutely right. It is complex, but everything we've talked about helped build the base for the city and downtown in particular. Many of those things wouldn't have happened had we not been involved. Yeah, I love it. I love the way Seattle keeps changing. I think the more Seattle changes, the more it stays the same. I, that's like a great cliche. No, but seriously, I think that um, 
the strength of Seattle and why it's interesting is that it doesn't just kind of become encased in glycerin or it doesn't become this little cute little display case. Sure, there's things that are kept from the past that move forward, whether it's the Space Needle or whether it's Pioneer Square or Pike Place Market. But in general, the core of the city and the notion of the city isn't afraid to reinvent itself That's every right. decade or so for whatever changes the world has brought to the doorstep that you have to respond to or you end up like, you know, you end up sort of fading from relevance. And I, I like how relevant Seattle feels right now. And I am fairly confident it will keep changing and reinventing itself so that if you and I did this drive 20 or 30 years from now, it'd look totally different, but it would feel like it was Seattle. We know we were in Seattle, but we'd, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't recognize every single thing we looked at. Well, I think that's true. And we're, we're driving down the waterfront at the moment. And you can look at these places and remember the old things that were going on here at yep. one time. Yep. The Ivers and, and Pier 56, the old curiosity shop here. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but look at the vibrant waterfront. Uh, thousands of people enjoying the weather and the waterfront. Yeah. And it's all because of you. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I'm not talking about me. I'd rather talk about the business community that has made this happen. Yeah. It's cool. I, I think the other thing I like about Seattle and the time I've been paying attention is just the, the balance and the and there's debate and there's struggle and there's fight sometimes. And there always will be. Yeah. But it's but the people in the fight, I think, mean they mean well for the most part, they want the same sort of successful city, whether it's someone from a business organization or a nonprofit human service group or a nonprofit cultural group. There's a sense of, of uh, the debate that makes it really interesting and you sort of want to yeah. see how things turn out and you want to engage in the process. So Yeah, anyway, want to be part of it. This has been great. Thanks for taking time to drive around downtown Seattle with me for, the, for episode two of Downtown Stories. Um, John Gilmore has been our guest today and um, we're going to get you back to your ferry boat. All right. Yeah. You've been listening to a conversation with John Gilmore, former president of the Downtown Seattle Association. He was my guest on Downtown Stories, a podcast from the DSA. I'm producer and host Felix Bunnell. See you next time for more Downtown Stories. Things are swinging in Seattle.